Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect anything different? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Lang Up Podcast. Solly here. I am stoked to bring you this interview today with J.J. Reddick. I'll tell you, if you flash back to college me, uh, he would be very, very, very confused that we would be interviewing uh, Mr. Reddick on a golf podcast. But the guy's an absolute sicko. You, we're going to get into uh, his background, how he got into the game somewhat recently. You can uh, you can see the passion shining through it. I won't spoil any more of it. Talks about a lot of hoops in this one, uh, which I think is understandable. Man, he's a great storyteller and has a lot of great experiences uh, that I will get to shortly. Nulling Up is brought to you, of course, by our friends at Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach and official fitness wearable of the PGA and LPGA Tours. My Whoop absolutely hates me right now. It has to be so confused as to what the hell happened this past April. A lot of travel, uh, maybe a few beverages here and there. That That is reflected in the data. That is showing that I'm not getting enough sleep. As soon as I'm done recording this, I'm going to go hit the pillow for about 10 hours consecutively. It tells you what your sleep need is, what your debt is. If you've had a rough couple of weeks you know, traveling or doing whatever, I find it extremely helpful. It is telling me how my body is responding to my habits. The new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with biometric tracking. includes skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. It's got anywhere technology you can wear it. Uh, the Whoop body sensor with in, with enhanced technical garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, bralettes, leggings, you name it. The all-new waterproof device is free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left of membership on your account, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. And right now, Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code NLU15 at checkout. Go to Whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com, enter NLU15 at checkout to save 15%. Here is JJ Reddick. I always enjoy. You know, it's funny. I always, I always enjoy going on other people's podcasts more than I like oh, hosting sure. my own. For sure, it's way yeah. easier. Like, there's no it's prep. Like, I'm watching 0506 highlights, <laughs> getting ready for all this. Like, I got a whole do that whole thing. It's uh, it's it's a weird thing. There's an element that I can can sort of associate with that feeling you get pregame. Yeah, because I get it. Even like, dude, I've done. Um, and you, you guys have done a ton as well. Like I've done, I think I'm at like 213 total now since I started in, in 2016. I've done a mi- million interviews. I've done a ton of TV appearances. I get nervous before every single time I go on ESPN. I get nervous before every single pod. I did. I'll do a podcast with like Chris Paul. Like he's one of my best friends. And like I get nervous before it. It's like that performance anxiety. It's just it's always lingering. That's super refreshing to hear because I feel the same exact way. Like the first time I'm getting ready to talk to somebody, I don't know kind of what that rapport is going to be like and whatnot. And yeah, that anxiousness before a game, obviously you've competed at much higher (laughs) levels, but like it's just that uncertainty, that same kind of, especially with live stuff. Like if you do live stuff on ESPN, that's a whole different level than pod. Like pods can feel kind of easy because you're the only two people in a room, but like live stuff, cameras and people watching, that's where, that's where it gets me. I find that I'm, it's weird. I, I find that I'm less nervous when it's on set versus doing like a green screen behind me. There's something about, you know, people being in the room. And, and now that I've gotten to know everybody, it's like, it's it's almost like you're chatting with your friends a little bit. You know, it's like, it's not as nerve wracking, but 
you, I did I did a uh, my third game recently. Uh, I did the game three of the Heat uh, Hawks series in Atlanta, and then the next day I did the NBA countdown on ESPN live from Barclays pregame. Those two are very when you're in the arena. Oh. You, it's a different feeling. I felt like a player. I literally the the, the nerves and the performance anxiety like it, it it existed the same way it existed before a game as a player. I was planning on starting with golf uh, with you, but I, I think we can kind of run there. You were kind of one of the first people to do media, do podcasts, doing a podcast while you were still playing in the NBA. And one, I was I was always curious when that started. It was like. How often are you like screening what you're saying? Because one, you don't want to give away secrets. Two, like you don't want you don't want like the dude that's getting ready to guard you to be like, oh yeah, yeah, I could I could beat him off the dribble. What was that like, uh, kind of doing that while you were still playing versus now doing it? Uh, you know that you're no longer playing in the NBA. You know the, the nature of the podcast format that I've done has always been interview, and it wasn't until really I retired that Tommy and I Tommy Alter my co-host that we started talking about the NBA in our intro so prior to that it was a quick intro on the guest maybe some administrative stuff whatever you know uh, go subscribe and then it was right in the interview and you know I'm 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 not responsible for what my guest says if my guest wants to talk trash about someone by all means you know um so I still have to balance that, even though I'm retired. I still have to balance that line because I'm always going to take this the 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 sort of angle of being pro player. I'm always going to support my peers, my generation of players. Um, but the, the the thing I got more as a player was like after a bad game, you know, stop podcasting. You suck. You yeah, know, you're podcasting too much. It's like, <laughs> no, nah, dude. Like literally, <laughs> people don't understand how obsessed I am with basketball. Like when I played. It was all I thought about. It was all I did. The podcast was very much a quick, you know, hour of prep, hour show, in and out. And it's an exercise of the mind, too. Like, you can't spend all day in a gym. You can't spend all day training. You need to be resting in some way yet at the same time. But it's funny. I was funny because I, I remember I listened to your interview with uh, with Jason Hare about the last dance. And it was like, I thought about I couldn't tell if this was after you had retired already. I don't think you were retired yet. But it was like you told a story about Carmelo, like locking you out of an all-star game. And I was kind of like, <laughs> man, I just wonder how that goes, right? About current <laughs> NBA players kind of telling a story about other NBA players, if anything ever got back to you. Um Car- I, we had so we did that with Jason. I think between, I think it was between episode five six release on Sunday night and episode uh, seven eight release the following Sunday, and so it was very much in the middle of the show and it was very topical. I believe I had told that story about Carmelo at least once before publicly, and we had Carmelo on the Old Man of the Three uh, very early in our launch. He was within one of the first ten or twelve episodes, and and I brought it up and we hashed it out with him. And I, the thing I didn't pr- quite like connect the dots on is we, we had played the McDonald's game in New York City, which, of course, Mello, you know, spent some time in, in his childhood in Brooklyn. And I had gotten MVP. Mello had a really good game. He was on my team. He had a really good game. He didn't get MVP. So then we go to D.C. the following week for the Jordan Classic. And I, Mello grew up in Baltimore. Like, Mello was trying to show out for the home crowd, you know, and – he he jacked that game, and I think I think I took like six shots, and it got back to me afterwards that that he had told some of the guys on our team he was like, "Yo, JJ's not getting MVP. We're not going <laughs> to let JJ shoot." Now he would not confirm that when I when I brought it up with them, but you know it's funny. Mello and I we played against each other in high school, 
And this was why the bubble in so many ways was a terrible experience for so many guys. But it was a cool experience because there was nothing to do but hoop. And and that's where I re-picked up golf as well. But it was nothing to do but hoop. And then at night, after games are done, everybody stay in the same hotel. We're all wine drinkers in the NBA. And we'd open a couple bottles of wine, four or five of us. And we'd stay up till 2 a.m. trading stories. And so Mel and I sort of got to reconnect during the bubble, which was really cool. So help me with explain this. I see LeBron always opening wine on his Instagram, doing all that. I get hungover as shit when I drink wine. Now maybe you guys are drinking more quality stuff that I'm drinking, but like, how do you balance drinking with like balancing playing basketball? Is there ever any any like kind of correlation with those things? Moderation is key. Moderation is always key in anything in life, unless it's. Uh you know, viciously attacking a goal, basically, you know, like setting a goal and then working your ass off to do it. But <sighs> I, it's just most Americans, most Americans <laughs> are drinking swill that and it, not price point aside. I'm not even talking price point here because you're a wine guy. That, just yes, for the I'm list, not listeners. Yeah. I am not talking price point. I am talking about the amount of additives that goes into most American-made wine that's made for mass consumption. There is so much shit in that wine. And so, yeah, you're going to be hungover the next day because your body's not only trying to process the alcohol, it's trying to process all the chemicals that were added to the wine after the winemaker made it. Hmm. Okay. That must ex that might explain my hangovers <laughs> a little bit. I might need to consult. Have you, have you, um, you, you just talked about, we, 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 off air, you were just in Scotland. I'm sure you've traveled to Europe and you've, you know, you drink a, I, dude, I'll go to Italy and I'll have a $20 bottle of a white wine and no like, hangover, no hangover, nothing, nothing the next absolutely day. Absolutely nothing. I traveled around Europe for three years, basically. And like, I could, I think I got one or two wine hangovers after that, but you come back here and it just hits you yeah. in a totally different way. But so you're talking about, you know, the, the bubble and things like that. And you talk about, you're kind of reconnecting with the game of golf there. What, what, what has been your golf journey? You know, for the listeners that aren't familiar with your current obsession, which we are going to dive very deep into, but how did it get to this point? Yeah, so the, so the background is I, I I didn't play any golf growing up. I didn't swing a golf club through high school, through college. I came back to Roanoke maybe my first or second year to run a basketball camp at my high school, and I went and played a round, and obviously you know, I, I didn't keep score because I couldn't score. Uh, and when I got back to Orlando, my brother came and lived with me and he had gotten into golf and we lived in a golf course community. And I met this guy, Brian Thompson, uh, he, you know, at the time he was, a, he was a chubby guy, very unfit, non-athlete. And I would go play golf with this guy and he would hit 330 yard baby draw bombs. And I was like, how is this possible? Like I'm the athlete. And so I, I played with Brian for a couple years there. Uh, probably my second, third in the NBA. We, you know, we would play again. I wasn't scoring. I didn't take any lessons. I had a, a set of clubs, and I'd play with them. You know, probably probably played like thirty rounds. When I started dating my wife. I moved out of that community. I didn't play again till 2013. So probably had like a five year gap from playing. Moved to Austin in the off season, and got into it a little bit there, um, but didn't have like I I tried to join Austin Country Club, and the wait list was three years. Didn't get my fucking membership till I moved, <laughs> till I could get the non-resident membership. And it's funny, I got that in 2016 when we moved, and I still have yet to play around there as a member. No which, way. Uh, yeah, I'm still a member. I'm, st I'm not. I'm not giving that up. This is where the the Dell Match Play is held. The World Golf Championship Match Play is held. Then in 15, my son was one years old. My wife gets uh, pregnant with our second son, and I just stopped playing. 
and from 15 until the bubble in 2020, I didn't play any golf. I still have the same set of clubs. I took them down to the bubble because I knew I was going to be bored. I didn't want to be in a hotel room all the time. I played three rounds in the bubble. I got back that fall, played a couple rounds in the New York area, got some invites, like awesome invites, Sabonic, The Bridge, uh, Hudson National. And I knew going into my into the 2020-2021 season, I knew it was going to be my last year. And I was like, I think I think golf should be my thing. Like I need some sort of competitive outlet. There's also the, there's the, the simple process of trying to master something that has always really interested me. And I got a, you know, fitted for clubs. I got back to New York in June, took my first lesson at the end of June and, uh, you know, played 50 rounds that summer. Like I was, I was literally, my wife wanted to kill me. I, she wanted to kill me. And I, uh, I've taken some more lessons since then. Um, and yeah, I mean, every, every trip, if I leave the New York area, you know, it's just like, what, what golf course can I play? <laughs> I was down in Atlanta as I was down in Atlanta, as I said, for game three. And I, when I got the call earlier in the week, I was kind of like a fill in for somebody cause I wasn't contractually obligated to do games this year. And they're like, do you want to do the Hawks game on Friday? I was like, absolutely. Atlanta, Atlanta, Atlanta. So I texted some people like, who do you know at Peachtree? I knew it. <laughs> you <know>? I knew <laughs> it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I played Peachtree first thing in the morning and then got back to the hotel uh, and went to the game. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a like, like you guys, you know, it is such, it is such an addicting sport and I've gotten completely bit. Yeah, I'm obsessed. What is it though? What is it about golf? You know, and is it is it weird to kind of go from a sport that you know you've as close to really mastering as you can get? You played at the highest possible level to something that you're, from what I gather, average at but improving. I kind of take us to <laughs> yeah. what what your game is like and what your uh, what you get out of trying to you know improve at this game. Um, so a few I've heard your, your quotes on it are like exactly why I love golf. Like talking about that that flush shot. Yeah, there's a there's a few things on it. So n number one, it, it's for me, it's competitive, um, and and it's probably in terms of a competitive scale, it's it, to me, it's like as competitive as any sport because you're competing against yourself, you're competing against the course, you're competing against the weather that day. I love to play matches. I love to gamble on the course, and I so you're you're competing for money. You're competing to beat whoever. I had a Duke lacrosse player that um, we were tight in college. We reconnected on Long Island out east two years ago, and we played like six matches together. We were six and zero last summer. Like it's just that competitive part is a huge part of it. Uh, as I mentioned, the the task of trying to get better at something. Um, it's why I love basketball so much. Is that I, I I could sort of have these measuring sticks of of feeling like I was getting better at something, and golf reflects that as well as anything. And then the third component, and, and I'm not trying to sort of like hyperbolize this, but golf really is a spiritual experience to me. There is something about being outside, being in nature. There's this idea that like we all have something in our lives where we feel closest to God. And for me, it's always been nature. And so I spent most of my fucking life in hotel rooms, gymnasiums, buses, <laughs> airplanes, waiting around to go play a sport indoors. So there's something that's very amazing about just being outside and walking around for four and a half hours and, and, you know, having 90 swings. <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. It's like, it's my closest connection with nature. Right. And like the, the more style of golf you can play that, I don't think it's a coincidence for me, the more golf you can play along the ground, like the more I enjoy it, the more I feel closer to nature using the contours of the earth to move the ball around instead of flying it through the air has been like, has been, have, have you played any Lynx golf yet? 
I, yeah, I mean, I guess you could describe some of the courses I've played as leagues. I have not been to Scotland or Ireland, uh, and I tried to book Bandon for this coming fall, and that was a no-go. Nope. Uh, so I called back. This was in September, and I was going to book for – this was last September. I was going to book for the following September, and they were like, we can't get you till late November. It was a 14-month wait. And I was like, I don't really want to go to Bandon in late November. So I said, okay, when are you opening up for next summer? And then I called back in December. So I called back in December, left a message, sent multiple emails, <laughs> filled out the form on the website. They called me back seven days later. And uh, I was like, I, I want two, two of the four bedrooms on three consecutive nights. And they're like, we can get you in at the end of June, mm. 2023. Yep. So I was like, great, I'll take so it. Going. And I, I booked the trip. So I'm going, I'm going there. This was kind of like my sort of like, you know, we do a guy's trip every year, but because I wasn't playing golf, we never golf. So this year we booked Pebble, Cypress, Pasatiempo, Spyglass, and we ended up while we were there getting invited to Monterey Peninsula and played the Shores course there. So that was to me like my first real like golf trip. And it was obviously it was, <laughs> it was yeah. like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> it was the greatest thing ever. So what is what is your handicap? You know, kind of when you get get back into it, what was it? What are you at now? What can you realistically get to? Like, are you seeing the trend that you uh, that you need to be seeing to kind of get to where you want to be? I inserted some score. Like I said, I I played a few rounds in 2020 fall. I played a few times while I was in New Orleans when they would actually let us that season. I don't know if you knew this, but there was two months of the season where we couldn't leave our hotel room or leave our apartment. This is pre-vaccine in in guys started getting vaccinated at the end of March. So there was a couple months there where I couldn't leave it, leave um, my, my room, but I played a few rounds in new Orleans. So when I got to, when I got to Sag Harbor last, last summer, I was like a 20.2. The end of the summer, I was a 14.3. Again, I've lived in New York. So after everything closed in October, I've probably played like five or six times and I only hit balls on a simulator. So I'm like a 15 right now. And it, it sucks to say that, but like my goal is the end of 2022. I just, I want to be a nine point something. That is the goal. Um, like I, you know, I, my best rounds in 86, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm capable. It, it's just, um, the best way to describe it is like, I'm a below average three point shooter in golf. So I'm, I'm somewhere below 36%. So let's say I'm a 33 or 34% three point shooter. And I will literally have a five for 10. I'll have a 50% front nine or a 50% back nine, but then I'm one for 10. I'm like, it's just, I have like every, you know, high handicap golfer. I have my, uh, my absolute blow up holes. The frustrating thing about, you know, trying to improve in golf is learning how much it's not about your good shots. It's just about how bad your bad shots are. And like, I play with, you know, some players that get it in the hole better than I do that I look at and I'm like, I have better physical skills than you do, but you just don't hit the dumb, dumb shots that I hit. And that's where it's just like repetition. Like it's so much of its repetition and, and going from, and you understand mathematics, just putting it out there right there. Like the best guys on the PGA tour, they're not capable of better shots than corn fairy guys. They just do it more frequently. Like much more on the, on the scale that they're at. And it doesn't really look like that much on TV, but that's where it's just like, when it's a diminishing return thing, the tighter and tighter you get and closer you get to scratch, the harder and harder it is to scrape out those shots. I don't know if you felt any of that. For sure. I, to that point to uh, Brian Scalabrini, I can't remember where he said this, but he had this quote, he was getting interviewed and, and there's a viral video of, of some guy challenging him at a YMCA or a local gym some guy, some random dude, and he beats the guy 11-0. And afterwards, he got asked about the video, and he's like, I, I told the guy, I'm like, I'm much closer to LeBron James 
than you are to me. And I felt that, of course, as a professional athlete. Like, I knew how good I was. I knew how good my peers were relative to the rest of the basketball world. And I've seen that in golf. You know, I, I played a course in Westchester County last fall with a guy who had just qualified for Q2. And it was we, we played Wingfoot East. And, like, the motherfucker had a par, a par putt on 18 that he missed. So he had his first bogey of the day. If he had made the par putt, he would have shot a 62 and said he shot a 63. He, the dude's out on the course. He smoked six heaters. He had two tapping eagles on the par fives. Like I'm like, this guy? And it, he didn't qualify in, in Q2. He didn't qualify. <laughs> he didn't make it through the, the next weekend. And I'm like, these motherfuckers are unbelievable. They're unbelievable. It'll blow your mind. And that's where it's like on a you know wingfoot east is not it's not the it's not the championship course there and that's where like right. those dudes will just rip it up and it's hard to tell the difference between those guys on that but then you take them to stretch it out three four hundred more yards little tighter fairways little tighter pins and that's where like the dudes that just separate themselves every every weekend that's what I was, so have you played much golf with professionals and i'm curious what that's like for you as a professional in a different sport to like to see others in that craft and what do you see and appreciate about that i don't think i've played with any any pga guys i know a bunch of them though of course living in orlando a lot of them live down there and i would go to the tavistock cup and walk and watch them play and so i you know i've gotten to know adam scott and i had colin morikawa on the pod last june and i you know we've stayed in contact but yeah, I'm looking like an ideal round for me. I love discovery property. So like an ideal round for me would be to go out to Vegas and play Summit Club with with Colin. That would be sort of like a, a dream golf scenario at this point. It sounds like you're making some of your golf dreams come true already <laughs> with some of these trips. But what have been you, you named off some of them. But uh, what have been some of the some of the highlight places you've been? You know, I, I, I learned this. I did an interview with golf.com and I, I mentioned a few of the courses that I would played and one of the courses it got back to me that they were pissed that I had at one point tweeted about being there. I don't know why. This place has 800 members. It's not like it's like, I don't know. Anyways, so I was like, all right, whatever. But like, I, I like, I play, like, some of this is, is just like the competitive side is like, I, when I got back into golf in 2020, I learned that there was like golf rankings. And I was like, oh, they rank the courses? This is amazing. So I you got a to do you know, list. I, pr <laughs> I printed off the sheet. Yep somewhere in my desk or somewhere in my office here and uh yeah i just start i just started crossing them off so probably eight of the top 20 working my way through the one i would really like to play this year that i haven't is sand hills mm. um again it goes, goes back to that nature this thing i've watched the golf digest every hole lat series they do i've watched that sand hills video probably five or six times and I got an invi invited there a couple of weeks ago. We haven't got a date on the books, but that's sort of the goal for this year is to, to get out there. No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf, the official rangefinder of NLU. Having doubt before any shot is never a good thing, whether you're stepping off distances from sprinkler heads or guessing based on the 150 stick. Getting the exact distance makes a big difference for your confidence and your results personally. I think actually seeing the number visually through there helps hammer something into your mind subconsciously. At Precision Pro Golf, you can choose from a family of rangefinders to fit exactly what you need. Choose from the Lightning Quick NX9 Slope or the R1 Smart Rangefinder with advanced features like wind assist, GPS distances, and MySlope technology we've all used. Uh, both the NX9 and R1 Smart Rangefinder, both are great option for you on the course. With every Precision Pro product, you get the same 
extreme excellence service. When you call, a fellow golfer is there to answer and make sure you're taken care of. With industry-leading customer service and lifetime battery replacements, you know Precision Pro always has your back. So go to precisionprogolf.com, save $20 with code NOLANGUP. That's all one word. Again, $20 with code NOLANGUP at precisionprogolf.com. Swing with confidence, hit more greens. Let's get back to JJ Redick. So it, it, on the list of courses you're not allowed to talk about playing is one of them located, you know, was there a, a tournament there somewhat recently or <laughs> there was a major, I, there was a major, okay. yeah, there was a major. Okay. I actually, it's funny. I hit the two best golf shots of my life at that course, two approach shots. Uh, one was like one ten on seven. I was underneath the tree branch. I was on the left side in the rough. Uh, my ball rolled rolled through the fairway, and I and I hit a. I don't even know how I did this, but I hit a little knockdown wedge, and, and it was like, you know, it spun back. It was two feet away, and then I and then I birdied eleven. Uh, that was like a eight. That was like an eight iron from about one fifty six, and it landed like twelve inches and and just died there. It had rained in the morning, so. Those those two birdies are the highlight of my life for sure. Highlight of your life, the highlight of no highlight of my life, my sporting life. I want to be clear. Holy like, shit! You're, when you're when you're walking on yeah. that sort of course and and you're able to execute shots, that to me was the biggest thing that I saw for someone that I again I'm fully self aware how bad I am at golf, but like to go from like a twenty or I probably was worse than that to to basically be un, unable to execute on a golf hole, you know, and that was sort of the transformation that I saw over the past year from, from actually working at golf and working with an instructor and a teacher and playing enough rounds where, you know, you, you feel like, okay, I just executed a golf hole. I, I hit my tee shot where I'm supposed to hit it. I hit it on the, on the right, you know, the right side of the green or wherever, you know, made, made it on, made it up to the, the upper level, whatever it was like you execute on a hole and you're like, wow, I've never done that before. That feels pretty fucking amazing. And that, you know, as much as that flush shot, that flush shot is awesome. Don't get me wrong. That flush shot is awesome. Or when you see like the ball flight that you're trying to execute and you see that ball flight and you're like, oh man, that was great. But for me, it's like the execution of a hole. That is a task. And I, and I executed that task to perfection. That's, that's the feeling for me that I love. You have so many years ahead of you of finding it and losing it, finding it and losing it. Never going to hit another bad shot. Never going to yeah. hit another good shot. Like it's, yeah. it's that's what's that's what's amazing about it. Is like it, you know, it's it's still no matter how good you get month to month. It's like what, I, I'm the same way you are. As soon as you think about a course, you go back to like the two shots you hit that like you just you go to sleep at night and you're still thinking about carving that shot in there or whatever you executed. Like that's exactly how my brain works and. Uh, I, I, that's where I get a thrill out of seeing, like, especially former basketball players. I feel like there's a huge force like, coming from NBA players. I feel like Steph Curry is a big leader in this in terms of just like talking about like, J.R. Smith going back to school and playing, you know, college golf now. And, you know, Andre Iguodala is a big golfer. Ken Bazemore is a big golfer. And it feels like feels like there's very real moment, momentum in other sports, you know, driving athletes, former athletes and current athletes towards golf. And I'm curious if you have any perspective on that. It was interesting when I first got in the NBA and got introduced to the game in Orlando, I had a few teammates that played and after they sort of either retired or left the team, this was like, you know, 2008, 2009 ish. None of my other teammates played. Then I went to the Clippers. Chris Paul was the only Chris Paul and Willie Green actually who coaches the Suns, the, the sorry, the Pelicans. Now they were the only guys that played and it didn't feel like that momentum you're talking about. It didn't feel like it was there in the NBA. And I think some of it is like we are 
most most professional athletes are, but certainly in the NBA, we are all copycat. Like it's a copycat league. You just do what the. This is why wine is what it is now. Because a couple guys are like, wine's awesome. And now everybody's like, oh, I got to find out. I got to get the best bottle of whatever. I got to get the the chat. You know the chateau latour whatever it is you know and and so i think golf has this this real hook on you so when you get introduced to it by your peers and it's something you can do on the road then it becomes you know again it's like the the community building aspect it's like then it's something you can really enjoy with other people and then i I think nfl there's a there's momentum in that sport as well you know travis kelsey patrick mahomes those guys they play in the uh the american century championship uh, I know a bunch of boxers are into it now. Um, it's always been baseball and hockey. That's always existed in those things. Um, but it's I think it's good that these other sports and these other athletes are starting to pick this up and introduce it uh, to each other. Um, you, you talked about going to sleep, by the way. When I was a kid, my mom said she used to come into my bedroom after school and I would be like laying in my bed with my hands up and she'd be like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm thinking of moves. I was thinking of basketball moves, you know? And, and I did that my whole life. And I, you know, whether it was like in the off season, I would visualize and think about my next day's workout and what I wanted to get accomplished. And pregame or game days, I thought about the shots I was going to make. I thought about who was guarding me. I've always been that way. And now... <laughs> Like I'll lay down to go to sleep and I could, I could literally have just gotten done watching six hours of basketball and I'll lay down to go to sleep. And all I'm thinking about is my golf swing. (laughs) And and if I had played that day, I'm thinking about the bad shots. I'm thinking about the good shots. I'm thinking about the feel, the feel, you know, and it's just, it's madness. It's madness. (laughs) Well, I was looking at just reading that golf.com article and just about thinking about it with some of your hobbies, you're talking about wine, talking about watches, now golf. Like there are huge community elements to those things, right? Like once you kind of get into it, like golf might look like this on the surface, but then you open up the door and it's like, oh, there's golf course architecture, there's equipment, there's all these things. I'm curious, kind of once that door opened for you, what have you discovered there beyond what you thought was maybe there? Golf course architecture. Yeah. That's it for me. What is it about it that uh, interests you? I, you know, like the equipment stuff, I haven't even gone down that rabbit hole yet. That's a I'm, deep I, one. I, That's I, a scary I one. I haven't nerded <laughs> out. And I've done, you know, I, I, the simulator I use uses TrackMan, and I've you know done enough lessons now, you know, with the visual component, the video, and, and the TrackMan stuff, that, like, there's, a, there's an element of, like, getting to a place of understanding of all that stuff and all the data. The equipment I haven't done yet, but then the golf course architecture stuff is like that to me is is the rabbit hole. I don't know why. It, the, the wine for me is like some of it is memorization, but some of it is is sort of connecting those dots. You know why one thing is done here, why it tastes a certain way, and golf course architecture. It's like especially the the golden age. You know, you know, early nineteen hundreds is like number one the amazement at how these guys were able to build these courses with no modern equipment (laughs) but also just using the land and there's been this huge push of course you know since uh, tom doe corin crenshaw where we've gotten back to that now all these new courses being built are, are getting back to that and for someone that grew up not grew up but some for someone whose entire existence early in their golf adventure was on really shitty florida courses (laughs) That all sort of played the same. Amen. Like to get to experience a place like Marion East or Shinnecock, like it's just fascinating. I'm I'm noticing every single detail 
Um, I'm, you know, if I'm being hosted by a member, I'm asking them questions about the history. When was the last time you guys did a renovation? What did they do? Well, you know, what's what's the philosophy on bunkers here? Like, those are the things that I sort of have nerded out about on with golf. You're going to lose your freaking mind when you go over to the UK and Ireland. Like, it's just some of the weirdest most like shit that you wouldn't if you did it on a modern course it wouldn't make sense at all yeah it's like i'm thinking of the first tee at ely in scotland we were just at they have a periscope that sees over the hill for the first you go straight up a hill over this ridge but like once you get to the other side it's wide open but it's totally blind tee shot and like if you started an american golf course like that people would lose <laughs> their mind and but for people that appreciate like fun stuff like that there's so yeah. much of that over there and if that's what's it, what interests you yeah you're gonna you're gonna lose your mind I've played, so I haven't played national yet, but I've played a couple of CB McDonald courses, and those are to me that's like that for a fun golf experience. The template holes are just they're so cool to me, and I I just have really enjoyed those experiences. Yeah, gosh, if you're already on template holes, you're gonna yeah that that's <laughs> that's further than I thought you'd be. That's really impressive because that's what you know people can can think uh, that golf course architecture can be very snobby or it can be very um, off-putting, but I just relate it to strategy. I consider it, it's really about strategy with a golf course. And I think bad architecture just promotes like an execution golf course, like, hey, hit it here and hit it here. And good ones like make you think about so many different routes and make you play strategic golf. And that's where I get so much joy out of it. Just come back from Bandon and little randomly placed bunkers where are like exactly where you want to hit it, make you change the way you're going to play the hole and uh that's that's golf to me rather than just like hey hit it between this water and this ob stake in florida because i know you've seen that in florida like that <laughs> is where you lose your mind i lost more golf balls playing the valley course at sawgrass right before we left on our trip than i lost in scotland and bannon combined it's just insane how how that can separate the thinking part of golf I, i'm really interested in but i'm not good enough yet to to really fully grasp it and when i play with a good golfer that's all i'm thinking about is like i if I could be that and have the options that that guy has, <laughs> you know, like I would love to have those options. My thing is like, I just want to make solid contact and hit the ball straight. Like, well, not straight because I I don't try to hit it straight. I, generally, I'm trying to hit a uh, little draw. But, you know, that's that's like I'm like when I get to that level and I will get to that level. I'm telling you right now, I will get to that level. I can't wait for that. The thinking part of it. Yes. Well, that's the thing, too. Good architecture is going to make it easier for a higher handicapper and more challenging for a lower handicapper. And I feel like golf is trying to get like the guys you're talking about, too, are trying to do that. Um, and you can you can feel that in a lot of places. But looking back on your NBA career, do you feel like you missed out on some great golf opportunities? Not, you know, not playing as much back then. Or is it is it a lot to try to squeeze in on road trips? Do many guys do that? I think, again, those Clippers years from, from my first two, two and a half years there. I played a couple times on the road. Um, we had the house in Austin, so like whenever we would go to San Antonio or Houston, I would figure out a way to get home for at least a night. And so I, I played a couple times on the road there. And then uh, one time we had a, a game in Portland, didn't have a couple games for uh, till we played on Portland on a Wednesday night and didn't play till Saturday. So we had Thursday off. So Balmer let us fly on his PJ up to uh, Seattle. He was going home to Seattle. And I had a teammate at the time, Spencer Hawes, who uh, is a member at Seattle Golf Club. And we went and played. But it is it is hard because, you know, you're not – a lot of times you're, you're getting to a city at 5 or 6 p.m. You play the next day. You Nowadays you stay over. When I first got in the league, you would fly out and you get to the next city at 4 a.m. But nowadays you stay over 
and you leave, you know, nine or 10 in the morning, there's really not enough time unless you're in a city for three or four days to really get it done. And the other problem, of course, is the season we play. There's maybe five or six cities that have good golf that you're actually able to play during the winter season. But I, I, w- I would say the thing I look back on is my L.A. years. And again, I, I that was when I really first started playing because I I don't count Orlando like it was not it was not real golf. <laughs> it's not real golf. And so but, what you know, when I was in L.A., Doc was a member at Bel Air. And so I got to play Bel Air a few times. My agent was a member at, at Riv, and I got to play that once. I didn't know what Riviera was. Somebody told me it was like one of the better courses in L.A. I didn't realize it was one of the better courses in the whole fucking world. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I'm just like, I showed up and played. I didn't, and I knew nothing about golf course architecture. So, like, for me, that's the that's the lost opportunity. Like, I would love to go back and, and play Riviera because it was I don't even I remember the the hole that has two fairways. That's literally the extent of that round that I remember. You have to be in the right phase of your love of golf to fully appreciate like all the all the things that something like that would offer. So that that makes a ton of sense to me actually that I think I play only time I've ever played Riviera, I was 22 years old, played it out of nowhere and also had kind of no idea. I mean I knew it was amazing but didn't know that like it I would like die to go back there now and i it's killing me that i kind of wasted that that trip at that time we're gonna figure this yeah, out we can get we can make it happen we're, we're gonna figure this out we're gonna make it happen so i have not been the biggest nba fan i golf has sucked up a lot of my sports energy over the last 10 years but i, I really want to talk to you about the evolution of the nba and how it kind of it has uh, kind of gone with your career right because hand up here this is a lot of my college buddies i know are going to listen to this because in college 0506 I could not have been a bigger JJ Redick fan. Like I was, I have no Duke affiliation at all, but I just saw like a very cocky three point shooter. And I was like, that's my guy. And so like we would have arguments back in the day, like who was going to be a better pro like JJ Redick or Adam Morrison. And I was like, Redick, 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 Redick. And I'm looking at like, just looking at your basketball reference page, looking at the evolution of your career. I'm really curious to see, you know, going from Orlando and going to LA really is, seems to be a transition as to when you blossomed and I wonder what you credit that to, because I, you know, if we are coming out of, even as a as a big supporter of yours coming out of college, I would not have predicted a 15 year NBA career like you had. Could you have predicted that at that time? Hell no. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Hell good. no. And not only that, like my best years were in my 30s. Like, I know. I, I no. When I was when I was, I would have killed for a 10 year career coming out of college, and I and I. After those first two years, I would have killed for a four-year career. I mean, I was I, I was on the ropes there um, after year two, and I I actually thought you were going to say I was the biggest JJ Redick hater in 0506. So I, I appreciate. I, this. There's a lot of those, but like I was the guy that was hooting and hollering when you're draining the NBA threes, you know, against Maryland back in the day. <laughs> I think some of it, the evolution, some of it is just some of it is confidence. I mentioned hanging on by by a thread there my first couple years and and my third year I I transformed my body and I always worked hard it was more just like all right now I'm going to focus on my body which I did the rest of my career in addition to working on my skills and but that third year I still didn't play every night and some some games I would play five minutes some games I would play 22 minutes and so I, I wasn't like I wasn't in it and then we in the first round Courtney Lee broke his face and I got to start game six, a closeout game on the road in Philly, um, hit five threes. We win the game. 
And then Stan comes to me and he's like, "You're gonna start. You're gonna keep starting against the defending champions, Boston Celtics, and you're gonna guard Ray Allen." And I guarded Ray Allen for seven games, which was an exhausting experience. Uh, I had to chase him around. We won the series, and I had some really good moments in the series. And that little stretch was it for me. Like that gave me the confidence that I felt like I belonged. We go to the finals. I got to guard Kobe Bryant a little bit. Got some stops. I mean, he made some shots on me too, but I got a couple stops on him. And that experience gave me the confidence. And then it wasn't even the transition from Orlando to L.A. It was that seventh year. We trade Dwight. Stan gets fired after after my sixth year. Stan's fifth year there. And they decide they're going to rebuild. And they kept me around. Uh, I think some of it was because they needed somebody in the locker room. But Jock Vaughn came to me in preseason. He's like, look, you're good enough to start on our team. Uh, we got a rookie, Mo, Mo Harkless. We're gonna we're gonna start him, and we're gonna bring you off the bench. But I need you to be. He was coming from San Antonio. He was like, I need you to be my Manu Ginobili, and he empowered me, and he allowed me, which up until and this is not a knock on Stan because it was a very different system. But he allowed me to play to my strengths, which is I got to fucking move. Like you may catch me once, you're not gonna, you're probably not gonna catch me twice. You're certainly not to catch me the third time I come off the screen. And so Jacques had this system, and it benefited everyone, where I just got to play my game. And and Doc had been trying to get me to Boston for forever. So when I became a free agent that summer, he had he had gotten traded, really. He had gotten traded to the Clippers like five days before free agency. And his wife had taken Pilates classes for my wife. So we're, we're driving down. We had done our anniversary trip in, in Napa. We were driving down the coast to LA because I was going to meet with the T-Wolves and the Pistons and Chris Doc's wife at the time uh, texted and said hey can I give Doc JJ's number he's going to call him tonight this was out of the blue and I was like oh fuck this is going to be the greatest thing ever so then I do the meetings with Minnesota the next day I do the meetings with uh, Detroit and Doc and I had dinner that night and he was like you've been used the wrong way I'm going to use you like Ray Allen, like I use Ray Allen in Boston. And I was like, God, I got to figure out a way to get to L.A. Well, they didn't have any cap space. They didn't have any money to give me. So the only way to, to get me was to trade Eric Bledsoe, attach Karan Butler's contract to it, and free up the cap, spa cap space to sign me. And that whole next day, that Tuesday, was like fucking torture. And at one point, I was um, at Martha's in Hermosa Beach with my agent, and we got the call. The Clippers were like, we're not going to trade Bledsoe. You know, it's not going to happen. We don't have any money for you. So I called Minnesota, and I was like, I'm coming to Minnesota. My agent, in the span of like an hour, my agent starts negotiating a trade kicker. We get a call back. It's like Lon Babby, who was in Phoenix at the time. He's like, Lon Babby wants to trade for Bledsoe. They're trying to make it work right now. And, you know, I'm getting ready to get on a flight to go back to Austin. Flip Saunders calls me he's pissed off he takes the deal off the table that i was going to sign in minnesota they signed Ke kevin martin 10 minutes later we're getting ready to leave for the airport i still have no confirmation that i'm going to sign with la as we're sort of getting in the uber it's like all right deal's done you're good sweet i think everything's great i don't hear from anyone for like three days <laughs> And I get this random call where it's July 4th weekend. I've got all these friends in town in Austin. We're getting ready to go to Austin Country Club to watch the fireworks. And I get this call from Doc. And he says, you better play for me, motherfucker. And I'm like, 
yeah, Doc, that's the plan. What are you talking about? And he starts sort of saying all these vague things, and I realize something's wrong, so I'm calling my agent. Two more days go by. My agent does not pick up my phone call. Finally, he calls me Saturday, and he tells me that on July 4th, Donald Sterling woke up, and he decided that he didn't want to pay me because I was white, and he had just paid Chris Kamen because he was white, and Chris didn't work out. So he's not going to pay me because I'm white, and he took the deal off the table. So then Doc threatens to quit. This all happens over these two days that I'm getting radio silence from everyone. Anyways, they finally got Donald Sterling to agree to do the sign and trade with me. I ended up in L.A., and it was the best thing that ever happened in my career. Being in L.A. for those four years, getting to play with DJ and Jamal and Chris and Blake. like, And also for me, as like growing as a person, I had, I, I had lived a very sheltered childhood. I homeschooled. I, I lived in a small little bubble outside Roanoke, Virginia. I went to Duke. That was very much a bubble spent time in Orlando for seven years, but that was very insulated as well. And then going to LA was like this very much eye-opening experience. And it, it it's the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now because I went to LA. It really is. I wouldn't have, I, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. And if I hadn't gone to LA and gotten to experience that with those guys and, and lived in that city, I, I wouldn't be who I am. What was, I mean, is the NBA a huge kick in the ass in terms of like you, your talent level, obviously in college, like you could just kind of run circles around guys. You could hit shots, you know that a lot of guys couldn't NBA is a much you know you're a, you're playing a different role what was that like I can't imagine you'd be surprised by a talent in the NBA but I'm wondering about that physical transition talk about that year three your body and and that contributes to you becoming a really strong defender in the NBA yeah. what contributes to you being again a 15-year player which I was not in the original projection and I'm just wondering if like you got out there got your ass beat and decided like okay this is not going to fly I got to change some stuff <laughs> I was a I was a terrible defender early on, and I was probably no I was a terrible defender very late. I I'll admit that. Like my last <laughs> my last year and a half uh, before I got hurt last season, my last year and a half in New Orleans, I was not a great defender. But those years in between, um, I was at least good, and I was at least very solid, and I wasn't a liability. And you know I could play on the court late in games and and all that. So some of it was the body transformation, but the, the other thing is like. It was a different league back then. That's like, there what was I want no, to talk about. There was too, there yeah. was no there was no high volume three point shooters. Right. There was no there was there was not a lot of movement. You know, um, like my rookie year, we played the Princeton offense with Dwight Howard as the facilitator in the high post. <laughs> <laughs> there was no analytics. Like it was not it was not a thing. And even with Stan, who again, I I I, I my my career was because I played for Stan. My I had my career because I played for Stan. He demanded so much out of me, and I, for me to see the floor, I had to be a defensive guy. But even that, like, it was a four out spread, you know, four out one in spread pick and roll offense. There was no there was no movement. It was a lot of standing in the corner or standing in the high quadrant. There wasn't a lot of movement, and so I think some of it was like, I, you you just you didn't know how to use me, you know, because again, I'm like I'm like a psycho, so like I I'm obviously distraught and discouraged that I'm the butt of all these jokes and I'm not playing my first two years. But if you came to one of our practices, you'd be like, how the fuck is this guy not playing? Because I just I just played in practice and I would kill in practice. And so I knew I knew to some degree, like, it's not the skill. I got to get over a little bit of the mental block and I got to get better defensively. And now this evolution we've seen really in the last decade, uh, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kyle Korver, uh, myself, yeah, I'm not saying I'm as good as shooters as those guys, but there's been a lot of, you know, Duncan Robinson, like there's been a lot of guys now where it's like analytically, of course, like the best offenses in the league historically ever 
are going to get you 116 points per possession uh, per 100 possession, right? Well, a 40% three-point shooter, if you can get that guy to shoot 10 threes, that's 120 points per 100 possession. That's that's league best offense. So if you have those guys, they're incredible weapons. And I I was fortunate to have that year with Jacques in Orlando, and then to be able to play for Doc, where they just sort of unleashed that. Hmm. Is what is what Steph did coming into the league? Did that help kind of exacerbate the need for a, a skill like yours? Right. I mean, coming into the NBA, it was not like all right, we need this guy hoisting five six threes a game. Right. Your first few years in Orlando, you were averaging under three threes uh, attempted per game. Yet analytics kind of showed exactly what you just said. And that skill becomes a lot more valued. And now when I flip on an NBA game, I feel like the shooting is just out of control. So good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't yeah. feel like, you know. No, I, one, I, no one was shooting step back threes in 2007, it, my rookie it's year. It's just like there's no one was shooting hand in the threes. face and yeah. dudes are just draining them. And I, maybe I was watching, you know, Booby Gibson play point guard for, for the Cavs <laughs> in that era. Not everyone was draining threes. I should say Eric Snow. He was definitely not draining threes. But it's uh i'm wondering if you if that if you you were there pre-analytics and post-analytics what exactly all those things taught you so so on, on who deserves credit for this like there, there's an evolution here so it definitely started with the seven seconds or less phoenix suns and d'antoni our orlando teams where all of a sudden we were playing you know a, a, a shooting stretch four that changed uh staff of course um, Daryl Morey in Houston basically going all in on trying to generate layups, free throws, and and threes. You're not like legitimately guys were not allowed to shoot mid range jumpers. So that that all kind of kind of happened. Those they those four teams and people like they, they deserve a lot of credit for this shift. But I think the philosophy about how to generate a three changed as well because. You know, when I got in the league, it was like, well, we have Dwight Howard, so we need a shooter to pair with Dwight Howard because Dwight's going to get doubled in the post. And by year four or five, teams were like, oh, wait a minute. So if Dwight shoots a bunch of twos and we don't double him and we don't allow them to shoot 33s, mathematically speaking, like we got a better chance to win. So his team stopped really doubling in the post unless, unless it was a, a huge mismatch or you're guarding Joel Embiid or Jokic. Like teams really don't double in the post. Teams don't really play through the post. So it became more about getting threes through movement, pin downs, dribble handoffs, uh, step up pick and rolls. And then, of course, Harden just fucked everything for everybody. Because <laughs> now it's like, all right, let's put the ball in the hands of the greatest shooter and let's let him operate and shoot step back threes. And then it's like the evolution of that. It's Damian Lillard. It's Luka Doncic. Um, you know, there's Bradley Beal. Like it, it, the, how threes are generated is 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 a big component of this evolution as well. Because if you're relying on standing still and swinging the ball around the perimeter to shoot threes, teams are too good. They they just don't allow that now. Hmm. How is the evolution too? You mentioned uh, you know earlier about the flying schedules have changed really in the NBA. And I'm wondering, you know, rest and, and nights off or load management or whatever it's called now, was that a thing when you got into the league? Is that something, you know, we've seen evolve over the years? Where, where does that come from? And what's it like truly trying to compete like on a back, the second night of a back-to-back? It's a test in mental fortitude. You know, and there were nights where you look at the schedule ahead of time and you're like, the fucking NBA did what? <laughs> like, we got – we got a game in Sacramento at 7.30, and we play the next day in Denver, 
but we're gonna we're gonna lose an hour. It's a long flight. Have you ever flown into Denver? Just yesterday, yes. <laughs> it takes an hour from the airport. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's the it's that uh, and 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 flying into Dulles in D.C. It's like the longest flights ever. So the, I remember there were times like CP and I would look at each other. We'd get in at 4 a.m. We'd get to the arena the next day and be like, "Dude, whatever you got tonight, man, I'm rolling with you. Just give me whatever you got." Because it it was hard on the load management thing. This is maybe hard for people to understand how the game is played has changed so much from the 90s so when people talk about well you know guys didn't take off in the 90s we're like okay well guys didn't have to cover as much space in the 90s the amount of space the amount of cutting the amount of movement the amount of closeouts you have to do defensively it's completely different than then people talk about hand checking you're like yeah that's great you know but like in the 90s you had a legal defense. You literally had to guard your man. So if you were ISOed on the wing, Michael Jordan's ISOed on the wing, you either had to guard your man, like literally next to him, or you had to go and double. If you did something in between, it was a legal defense, it was a technical foul, you got a free throw. Now it's like, I'm going to be in a dig position, but I still got to get out to my guy and I might go double. So you're just every possession, you're covering more ground. There's more miles. It's just, it sounds that's exhausting. the evolution of the game. Yeah. Um, and so that's partially why load management exists. And it's another reason that I think that, you know, we've seen all these injuries, man. It's like the game's harder to play. There's just more space to cover. And that's where it's like, you know, same with the analytics thing. It's like, well, you have a team that starts to lead the pack in terms of load management or, or managing how their guys are spending their minutes. Then like the rest of the, you know, you're losing strokes to the field to use a golf analogy in terms of if you're not doing that, right? So then it all kind of, starts to trend that way so maybe every you could say oh no one was doing that in the 90s but maybe everybody was doing it wrong in the 90s too like there seems to there's got to be something to that the other part of that is the amplification of ring culture and so if you know and i grew up look i grew up watching 90s basketball it, it is my golden age of the nba it always will be because there's some nostalgic factor the players that I grew up trying to emulate and and all that the moments that you know you, you got the NBC NBA and NBC song stuck in your head just like everybody sure. else who watched it yeah and and those Sunday afternoon games on NBC like there's something about it I loved it but like the you know the game the game just changed it it, it, it just completely changed what's you know you talked about going to bed thinking about the golf shots you've hit what about what are some of the uh the basketball shots you've hit in your life career that uh that are the ones that stick with you the most it's a good question I the three I hit in front of our bench against Miami my senior year that broke Johnny Dawkins' record, um, that one sticks out, you know, for a number of reasons. Johnny was such an important part of my journey at Duke and just had so much respect for him, and that was a goal of mine that I set when I signed with Duke. I wanted to be the all-time leading scorer at Duke and to have him three feet away from me, and he stood up and clapped. And then there's a picture coming from the baseline where I'm in that left corner and, and I'm sort of facing the camera and behind me is my parents and a few of my former teammates at Duke that had graduated and left that were back at the game. So that, that moment sticks out. There's a couple game winners I hit that stick out, but honestly, I think more about the shots I missed. Mm. You know, I, those are the ones that it sucks. Those are the ones that, that stick with you. I don't, I don't lay up at night thinking about games. I won. I think about 
opportunities lost. And whether that was a Duke or the NBA, like I won a I won a bunch of national championships in AAU growing up, and I and I won my state championship in Virginia my senior year, and I won ACC championships. That that's it's not the same, you know. It's like it's like national championships at Duke and NBA championships. That's all I ever wanted to do. That was the agenda. You know, there was the agenda was to try to win a championship. And because I, I didn't get to experience that, um, I think more about I think more about losses and I think more about missed opportunities, missed shots than I than I do the good stuff. I scored zero points in my final high school game, and I still like sometimes wake up and I'm like, oh my god, I was over eighteen or whatever it was. It was bad. What uh, were you really over eighteen? No, 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 it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. It was over several, but it wasn't it wasn't quite that yeah. bad. But. With some of the some of the uh, the the rather vulgar uh, heckles and chants you got at you are well documented. But I'm curious, was there, was there ever like a really good heckle or chant or something <laughs> that kind of made you laugh? Like kind of like, all right, that was a good one. Yeah, I mean, there was a there was a sign at Maryland uh, my sophomore year that was that was like peak peak JJ Redicate uh, my sophomore year, and there was a sign at Maryland that said JJ drinks his own pee. And I thought that was really funny. I thought that was clever. You know, there was also signs that, that referenced uh, sodomy with my little sister. So there, there was like two ends of the spectrum there. There was this group of students that game. They were sitting right behind, I think it was Mike Patrick and Dickie V that did the game right at center court across from the scores table. And during warmups, I noticed that they were, uh, there was a picture of me on their t-shirts. They all had matching t-shirts on. And there was this lovely picture of chubby sophomore JJ on there on there i normally don't refer to myself in the third person but i'm just trying to set the stage here uh so there's there's this picture and all these matching t-shirts so i i walk over and i'm you know I, of course i'm getting heckled and i'm talking shit back and i look and and the t-shirt has a picture of me and it says when i grow up i want to name my kid jj reddick and at this point they recognize that i'm now looking at their t-shirts so then they all simultaneously turn around and on the back it says and beat him every day <laughs> Which again, child abuse is a very serious thing. But that shirt, I I don't know. It was just like I was like, that is that's fucking amazing. <laughs> that's the amount of hate that you're gonna go to. You're gonna take the time to to, to screen print that T-shirt. Were you okay with being hated? Like, it, if I may say, even as a fan of yours at the time, it was kind of like he is bringing a lot of this on himself. If I may say, <laughs> maybe that, I'm not saying you deserved all of some of the bad things that were said, but. It was very much like you kind of steered into it, I felt like, at times. You know, I, I, we didn't play a, a road game until our t my 10th or 11th game my freshman year. We, we had, like, neutral site games. We played Ohio State in Greensboro. We played UCLA in Indianapolis, and we played a bunch of games in Cameron. So our first road game was right after Christmas break. It was at Clemson, and I come out for warm-ups, and it's just vicious. And I'm like, this is weird. And then a couple days later – we go to UVA, and I had uh, really bad uh, back acne my, my freshman and sophomore year at Duke. There's a group of students that had, like, these makeshift Duke number 4 jerseys, and they had painted red dots on their shoulders. And, again, like, I'm 18 at the time and 19 my sophomore year. You don't have the ego, that a healthy enough ego structure to properly deal with this. And it goes back to me being an asshole and being competitive. I just decided to lean into it and essentially play a character. Uh, I was I was playing this villain and and yeah, I kind of enjoyed it. I'll be honest with you, I kind of enjoyed it. But uh, the the best thing that happened to me was really rough sophomore year. 
um, basically behaved like a frat kid the entire second semester. I mean, I would, you know, I'd go have 20 beers the night before a game and then go score 25 the next day. And I thought, you know, I thought I was invincible and it eventually caught up to me and, and coach, uh, brought me into his office after we lost in the final four to UConn. And he said, uh, he said, you know, we didn't win a national championship because you weren't, you weren't worthy to be a, a, a national champion. And coach never yelled at me, but he, he would say things like that at times my first two years. And that really, that cut to my soul. I, that really hurt. We had a meeting about a month later and he was just like, look, man, like you, you can't keep going down this path. So he got me help. Like I, I went and started, I saw a therapist. Um, there was a, a period of time during that summer where I, I saw a psychiatrist. Um, I, you know, I didn't take any medication, but like we, I worked through all of these issues that I was having, not just being hated, but working through issues, like tr trying to figure out who I was and becoming comfortable with myself. And at different times throughout my pro career, I sought mental health professionals. It was great for me. And if, if I, you know, if I'd gone to another school, I don't know that I would have had the NBA career I'd had. I don't know if I would have grown as a person like that whole experience while it sucked at times, it was, it was great for me. It helped me become who I am. Well, I think it's, it's very, in today's day and age, it's way easier to talk about seeking mental health, uh, than it is maybe would have been at the time, but I'm curious as to what specific takeaways you had from those experiences what it taught you about yourself or what why people you hear people that have gone through it speak so highly of that experience you know part of it is it's it's, it's unbiased uh, so it's di it's different than talking to a friend it's different than talking to a dad but as an extension of that for someone who again <laughs> you know I grew up I grew up going to church and I grew up in what I would describe as guilt-based ministry and so to be in a judgment-free zone, oh man, it was liberating. It was liberating. To admit mistakes, flaws, to work through those, um, to be able to sometimes get a pat on the back. Like that was, that was important for me. Um, you know, there's a, guy, there's a guy I still see um, that helped me work through my retirement. And, 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 you know, I was, for a year, I was 99% of the way there and I couldn't let go. And, so working through that with him and and talking through time value propositions uh, was extremely helpful. And, and he's he's able to handle a bunch of different fields in mental health. But, you know, I, I sort of use him now as like a performance coach. And so, like, again, it's like it's all unbiased. This guy doesn't I, I met him three years ago. He doesn't know me from anyone else, um, but he's somebody I can sort of work through ideas with, work through feelings with. Like it's it's been great. So it sounds like you got your health, you're young, you've got resources. It sounds like you'll be playing a lot of golf in retirement. Is that, is that accurate? It's part of the reason that I decided, like really decided in the last like six months that I'm like, you know, the media gig's not that bad because there's a lot of flexibility with the schedule. You know, I, I the example we used of that course that's uh, down south where there was a major, like... <laughs> Like my buddy, you know, he works in finance. He's a Duke grad. He's older than me. I met him when I lived in LA uh, and we've kept in touch. You know, he texted me and he's like, hey, I heard you're into golf. I'm going to play and we're going to leave Thursday. We'll come back Friday night. And like, had I had a normal job, <laughs> like I'm not, I can't just be like, yo, I'm out. I'm going to go play golf for two days. But, you know, 
my media schedule was was clear that week. So I think I worked on Tuesday and did a podcast, and I was I was able to do that. So it's crazy to think about how much golf I've played since last June, and to admit that it hasn't been enough. Love it, dude. That's it. Takes like five days in a row in like a really bad weather day to make me be like, okay, need a day off. I'm good. Like <laughs> yeah. that's that's how yeah. much I could play it every single day. So we, yeah. something we're gonna have to get out on the course. Let's we all have to make that happen uh, now that the world's is pretty much back to to open travel but uh appreciate you spending an hour with us man it's some epic stories and uh like i said it gets my gets my juices flowing to see someone like yourself get uh get get the golf bug as strongly as you got it so thanks a lot for for coming on and we'll have to do it again sometime i appreciate the time let's figure out a time we can get together in person we'll we'll film some content we'll have some fun drink a couple beers be a good time love it. Let's get it the right club be the right club today Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most!